0: Okay, welcome back to Los Nazarenos. Los Nazarenos. Welcome back
1: to the los Nazarenos.
0: So today we have a really special guest with us, um, Father Dan Horan. Um, is it okay if I call you Dr. Father Brother Daniel P. Horan, OFM, Ph.D.?
2: <laughs> you forgot I, I also have an honorary degree so you added to after phd it's not quite long enough so okay a couple more things <laughs> you can throw in all the masters and the bachelors in there too yeah, yes. <laughs> it's about so, four sentences long My yeah. yeah you can just
0: call me dan that works yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so we've got we've got father dan here um he's a franciscan friar um of Holy Name Province, um, that's kind of the eastern region. If if anyone is really that interested, um, he's the director of the Center of Spirituality at Saint Mary's College. The I guess the new director of Saint Mary's College for Spirituality and um, the co-host of the Francis Effect Podcast, NCR yeah. columnist, all kinds of good stuff. So. Uh, Welcome to Los Nazarenos, Father Dan. (laughs) Muchas gracias. It's great to be here. (laughs) Yeah. And if you want, if your Spanish is top-notch, you and Kerwin can leave me in the dust. (laughs) (laughs) No, necesito practicar. No, (laughs) no. Dale muy bien en español. (laughs) Gracias. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so today we're... we Father Dan wrote a book a couple of years ago called Catholicity and Emerging Personhood, a contemporary theological anthropology. There's a chapter in there that focuses on like different aspects of sin. Mm. And so what we wanted to do is have Father Dan on to um, unpack um, this sin, like what obviously impacts everyone's lives, but what is also can be very misunderstood and from uh, church teaching perspective. Um, so we want to just take a super deep dive that hopefully is helpful, or to some people may just be totally boring. But we'll try to make it fun. <laughs> so um, yeah. So I get. Are you guys good? We'll just jump right into this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, how can you boring? How can you how can you be bored with sin? That's yeah. Right. You know, it's, that's how where all the fun in life comes from. It, it <laughs> is. <laughs> And that's how you get to sin. (laughs) Wrap it up. (laughs) Just just so you guys know, los nazarenos we're trying to be funny. Like we're we're not. We're We're not not... (laughs) making fun of sin. (laughs) (laughs) We're not encouraging you to go out and sin.
1: (laughs) Please Yeah. yeah Which is funny. So one of the things that I was while I was talking to Justin, I was like, I was thinking. I think it'd be helpful to to look at how dogma and doctrine functions within the church before we really like jump into like original sin. So we, we can see where kind of original sin falls within that.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's such an important point. And uh, something that I think the average
1: Catholic or
2: Christian more broadly, or even quite frankly, a lot of ministers in the church, ordained, lay, religious, don't oftentimes think about and I have a theory about that. I will share in a minute, but, <laughs> but the <laughs> yes. truth is you're, Kerman, you're exactly right that there's like, well, actually the Vatican counts, second Vatican council calls it a hierarchy of truth. Not everything mm. that we believe as Catholic Christians is of the same weight is of the same importance. Um, yeah. and, and that's what that means, you know, that for instance, you know, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, fully di- divine and fully human. Is that, as important as what color you wear when you celebrate mass on a given, you know, Tuesday, (laughs) you know, in ordinary time. The answer is obviously no. And yet there are some things where, you know, without people thinking about it, start (laughs) acting like every little aspect of our, of our belief system, especially when it comes to ethics and morality is of the same weight. And that's just Mm -hmm. not actually what the church teaches. So you know, how does it function? Some things are more important than others. Some things are required, require a different response from the faithful, from the baptized. Um, And so things that are considered dogmatic dogma, that's kind of, if you think of a pyramid, that's at the top, the pinnacle, Mm -hmm. it's it's stuff that we understand to be divinely revealed. We have uh, another category that we call definitive doctrine. And this is stuff that is very close to dogma, you know, stuff that, you know helps us to understand divine revelation um both of these categories are things that are considered to be taught with the charism of infallibility they're not going to change they're not going to lead people astray um and numerically they're the smallest categories like there's not that much that falls in there you know you're thinking of things like the creed or like dogmatic statements like the immaculate conception or the assumption mm-hmm. of Mary right And then we have everything else basically falls into two other categories. And, uh, you know, that's a whole lot of things that require, you know, a a different kind of response, one of belief and trust and, and, uh, you know, an aspiration to incorporate into one's life. But, um, you know, there's also the possibility, the remote possibility that maybe the church has got that wrong. And, If people are freaking out right now, listening to the (laughs) podcast, being like, "Uh uh-oh, where's he going? (laughs) You know, just rewind the clock to, you know, 1959, uh, the Catholic Mm -hmm. Church did not believe its teaching said that human beings did not have uh, a basic right to religious freedom, that Mm -hmm. the the theory, the, the view of the church was its teaching said very clearly that we should promote Christianity and convert people and stuff. Fast forward to 1965, the end of Vatican II, and religious liberty, there's a whole document on this, mm-hmm. and it's considered a basic fundamental human right. Um, that's my favorite, because it's in the lifetime of maybe some of our listeners, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. you think <laughs> things don't change? Uh, hello. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we could go through the list. Anyway, um, that's in a nutshell, I think, what what we might say, yeah. with like, you know, there's a whole range here. And that's why people should study theology.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. listen to
2: podcasts like this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well,
0: I, I think it, I, the truth bomb I always like to come back to is stuff like Augustine didn't believe in the immaculate conception. It was just yeah. like, yeah. It's like, what? No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Didn't have the language for it even. You know? Yeah. <clears throat>
2: Yeah. You know, I think th- there's this great line by Saint, Saint well, now Saint, re- relatively recent Saint John Henry Newman um, mm-hmm. about the development of doctrine. And he's, I think he he says it very convincingly for people who feel like nervous. And, and his idea is that development is the key. So like mm-hmm. if, if you had a time machine and you went back to the fourth century and you sat down St. Augustine after he was like, Finishing freaking out for why is this guy showing up from the future? Okay. let's Once he gets beyond that and you're like, okay, the reason I've traveled, you know, 1600 years is to tell you about this doctrine of the immaculate conception. And, and he's like, well, what? And then once you explain it to him, Newman's theory is they'll get it. Mm-hmm. That, that yeah. there's continuity, right? That you could kind of like reverse engineer it, yeah, and that's how you know that the, the spirit's working, you know, in the development of doctrine. But it yeah. is a good point, like us had, <laughs> he would have no idea, he
1: would be very scared, first of all, shut up in <laughs> your time <laughs> machine, <laughs> like time traveler, no way,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so just kind of building off of this, how doctrine works, um, within the like pyramid, um, uh. Uh, maybe not an upside down pyramid scheme, so to speak, but uh, no, uh, a right isn't... a right side up good pyramid. <laughs> yeah, not not Lula Rowe as the yeah. documentary on Amazon is,
1: is uncovering.
0: Yeah, um, so where would original sin fall in this hierarchy of truths? Yeah, so original sin's interesting because you
2: you mentioned Augustine. Who uh, it's uh, just a shout out back to Augustine. one of the things I I talk about, and I think I do in the book, um, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember now, but it's uh, something I definitely talk about when I teach about original sin is we have to make a distinction between what we might call the concept of original sin as an idea, as a doctrine, and the reality of original sin. Mm -hmm. And so prior to Augustine, it's really hard historically to make the case that there was a doctrine or a concept of original sin. Truly, Augustine coins the phrase, right? And he doesn't do it because he's like, you know, it's like back to the future. And he hits his head on the toilet and like comes up with a flux (laughs) capacitor. He doesn't like, it's not out of the blue. He there's, there's a context, right? There's a historical conversation Mm -hmm. going on. That's been going on for 300 years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's one of these things like, you don't know, you have to clarify something until you come up against the question that pushes you to the edge of the unknown. And so famously this British theologian, this late theologian named Pelagius is proposing one way of understanding human nature. And he's trying to to make sense of what we believe by grace, the indwelling of the Holy spirit, how God works, what grace is for us. And Augustine has, he's, Mm -hmm. something is not right to him about that. He's like, this is not right. And he can't at first put his finger on it. And they have this kind of back and forth and, in the end, at the end of the day, Augustine formulates what we now recognize as the concept or the earliest doctrine of original mm. sin. Um, why do I bring that up? Because original sin is 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 important because original sin, as a concept, even the phrase itself, is historically contingent. Mm. But the reality is something that's persistent. So, for instance, I would I would say that the reality of original sin falls. Quite frankly, into into the dogmatic category, it's a part and parcel of our human history or, or humanity's experience in salvation history,
1: mm-hmm. right?
2: And there are lots of so so that's one thing. Like, <laughs> if if we want to talk about like a core belief, the reality of original sin, that human beings are somehow. Born into a context and experience a reality, are affected by things bigger than themselves Mm -hmm. and are affected in their own agency and decision making and like free will, exercise of free will, then that is that's pretty high up on that pyramid. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: The tricky thing is, well, how do we express that? How do we articulate it? Augustine Mm -hmm. had some ideas that he formulated a proposal in the fourth century, some of which the church took formally at the, the Synod of Orange and the Council of Carthage and then later at the Council of Trent and, and so forth, um, basically reiterating or, you know, those statements. But actually, the church doesn't embrace in those formal documents and those formal councils and synods everything that Augustine said because Augustine also had some wacky ideas like double yeah. predestination. <laughs> and so you know, that, that's the Holy Spirit working in that uh-huh. Newman sense of development too, where at least the bishops were listening to the Holy Spirit and like, you know what? Maybe God doesn't automatically damn people to hell before yeah. they're born. Like maybe we could just leave that part out. Augustine, you know, that's,
0: that's very Calvinist sound. It is,
2: it is. <laughs> Calvin, Calvin was like, you know what? That Augustine, let's bring that part back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, he, he, Calvin might have been the 16th century. You know, make original sin great again or something yeah. like this. <laughs> you <know? Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> Sorry to our Presbyterian friends out there. Yeah. I Conflate the great John Calvin with somebody else who uses a slogan like that. Cool. Yeah, but so, so you know, there have been lots of different in the last 1600 plus years, lots of different ways of trying to unpack what we mean by original sin. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know. We can talk about that if you like, but, you know, yeah. you know, I think it's important to realize that that doctrine does develop. Like mm-hmm. you were saying, Kroon earlier, there's, there's a hierarchy of truth. I think what's key for for Christians to recognize is that one of the things we understand about human nature is is that we are affected by things outside of ourselves. We're not immune from uh, what's come before us, the Mm -hmm. context in which we find ourselves and our own kind of brokenness. That's kind of in a nutshell what what original sin is talking
0: about. So it's so important to understand like Augustine's world to like, understand this first kind of articulation um what what might be some more like contemporary um theologies or um conceptions of original sin um and and i know i when i sent you an email i was like my vague understanding of what (laughs) ronner was trying to say in (laughs) um, uh, foundations of christian faith or whatever oh yeah
2: i think i've got it somewhere Where's my oh, foundations here? I know this is an audio <laughs> form, but yeah. I'm looking because I'm I'm at home and I always have a copy of foundation somewhere because I am a big nerd. But apparently, I Obviously can't I find it. I love
0: it. Well, that's where You gotta have a home copy. So, <laughs> yeah. so I don't know if this will should, could be you or someone else one day, Father. Maybe I'll do it in ten years, but with uh, of like Mary Beth's book of. Uh, or wow. for for listeners, sister Mary Bethingham, um her book, Understanding John Ven Scotus. And I when I read that, I was like, I don't think it's possible to understand John Ven Scotus. <laughs> so we need an understanding Carl Rahner. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, like Carl Rahner for dummies. You know? Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, I you know, I've over the years I've taught Rahner a lot, and he is intimidating. His writing style's tough. You know, there's the famous joke, you know, he's the younger brother of another Jesuit, uh, another German Jesuit, Hugo Rahner, his older Mm -hmm. brother. And the joke Mm -hmm. was that one day uh, some journalist asked Hugo about his little brother, Carl Rahner, this great theologian, this great, you know, advisor to the bishops of the Second Vatican Council. He said, you know, what do you think about your brother's writings? Have, Have you read your brother's books? And without missing a beat, Hugo says, well, I keep waiting for them to translate it into German. Because the, <laughs> the joke is, you know, he writes originally in German. And it's like, it's so convoluted that even his brother's like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Um, but the truth is, this is the, the, the brilliance of Rahner um, much more than Scotus. Scotus is legitimately complicated, but that's mm-hmm. a contextual difference. With Rahner, it's, you know, I, I once heard somebody describe kind of genius or like, originality as being being able to articulate something that after it's expressed, people then realize like, it could never like, how could we have ever thought that this wasn't the case before Mm. that it was like so obvious in a way. And I think that's, that's part of what makes Rahner so important for the church, especially in the 20th century is that, you know, he really got it. So, you know, for him, original sin We we have to go back. We always have to go back to Augustine, like by (laughs) contract. So like one of the stereotypes of Augustine is also rooted in truth, which is that he had, he was very much a man of his time. And so for him, he was just trying to like put one plus one plus one equals three. And he's like, okay, there's this reality that everybody experiences this propensity to sin, right? There's this drop. We St. Paul says famously, like, I know what I should do, but I do the opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all this kind of, we, every human being knows what that's like. We know we shouldn't do something, but we do it anyway. Or we feel like the temptation toward it is like, like gravitational pull, like the force, <laughs> you
1: know,
2: just, it's almost like original sin. Here's a new theory. Original sin is return of the Jedi and in, in the Dagobah system where Yoda is closing his eyes and pulling the x out of the bog, you know, that's yes. you, something's going on and you can't help but feel it. Anyway, that was way in the weeds. Sorry, listeners. No way. It's okay. It. <laughs> um, but the, you know, at, at the end of the day, Augustine's, hypothesis was that then it had to be something what we would today call like genetically or sexually passed on yeah like how do people come into existence well it's it's like a hereditary or an inheritance. Your parents had it. Now I do sound like Star Wars. Your father had it. Your sister. Oh my gosh.
0: Leia's my sister? Spoiler alert. She also has the force. She can, she can fly through space. I know. Oh man. Now we're really spoiling it. You know,
2: we've got the-, the post schools. So, you know, I, I think, so what Ronner gets at is he says, okay, that, that for in the fourth century that made sense, right? Yeah. That was one way to articulate how do we pass it on. Rahner is among many others who say, "Let's go, let's let's not get hung up on Augustine's articulation of the concept. Let's go back to that reality of original sin mm-hmm. and try mm-hmm. to think of a way theologically that also is in in line with the natural sciences and social sciences that makes sense to explain how is it." That we live in this world of grace, famously a Roner concept, right? That, that he returns again to Augustine. Augustine believed that grace is the gift of God's self as spirit, and that it's a healing indwelling of God's very presence. And so Rahner embraces that and he says, Okay, we live in this world of grace. It's not a commodity that's limited. God discloses and makes available to all creation God's self at all times as spirit. We can cooperate with that grace or not, we can refuse it or not. That's that's up to us. And even Rahner gets a little unsure toward the end about whether we can even refuse it. Can you really Mm. refuse the gift of God's grace? That's another (laughs) podcast maybe, but but then he's, you know, how do we account then for the fact that we sin? How do we make sense of this? And, And part of it has to do with our limitations, the finitude that we experience, that we are imperfect, historically grounded contextual creatures. And and it's not to water it down. It's not to kind of exonerate ourselves, but, but we make mistakes, you know, one mm-hmm. way that in one of Rahner's essays, he talks about it is I'm trying to think of how exactly how he phrases this. It's like, it's like overstepping or tripping over or something like this, you know, where, mm-hmm. you know, you make a, a leap too far um, and and you miss the mark, you know, famously missing the mark is mm-hmm. kind of a phrase that comes up a lot. Yeah. Um, and so I think what it does is makes it less rooted in some kind of like STI, not to be Uh graphic, but like, like not some kind of disease that because your parents had sexual intercourse to conceive a child and that child was you and you were born and now you got this from your parents. It's not like that, but it's rather we're born into something and part of our very existence, part of the, part of our limitedness, basically our, our finitude mm-hmm. informs the way we move in the world and relate to one another and god and so if you're human you're finite you're limited you have you have this experience that that we can say is a shared human experience and part of that is the what we might call the reality of original sin that it precedes us it's not the same as our discrete acts of sinfulness or harm but there's you know there's this propensity we have
0: yeah well, so would it be at least a way that I've tried to like simplify and articulate would be like, rather than born with original sin, we're born into original sin. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a great way to to put it.
2: And and that's exactly the sense we're born into this context, right? We're born (laughs) into this reality, into this world. Um, And it also, interestingly enough, if we get out of that kind of quasi genetic or hereditary framework, And, and start thinking about the being born into it, then it actually is more in keeping with Augustine and his predecessors, like the early church trying to make sense of this, right? Because, because there's this, you know, this, this way of entering into the world that is itself broken, right? And the hypothetical is, at least for Augustine, he thought of it much more historically, But if you want to take literally the the third book of Genesis, uh, third chapter in Genesis rather, and say like there was a time when human beings did not experience the consequences of original sin. Mm -hmm. Well, then you could imagine a hypothetical world in which people could be born into a world, not be born into sin as it were. Mm -hmm. Right. We don't Mm -hmm. know such a world. I don't think it. it, Ronner's also very clear about this. He's like, let's, you know, Genesis three is is an etiology. It's a way of explaining how we got here. It's yeah. not it's not a historical document.
0: Absolutely. I um this uh, kind of in speaking of this, uh, like a bit of a Augustine, like and the implications for if you tried to like smash Augustine's thought into contemporary world, it's like <laughs> would would be the same as like. Our like our mitochondrial DNA carries sin or something, and then, but the absurdity to say that human beings have the power to override God's own creation and put a permanent stain on God's creation, like that, it's in a sense saying we're more powerful than God, and I'm, I'm sure yeah, that's but- that's not. That would be violating a dogma, I'm pretty sure.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it, it violates a Ten Commandments, right? It makes yeah. us into a God, right? It, yeah. it forms a kind of idolatry. You know, I think, I think there's really something to that. It's interesting, more contemporary theologians, people like the late Jesuit um, Stephen Duffy. Uh, I think he was a Jesuit. Maybe he wasn't, now that I think about it. Might have been a diocesan priest, taught for many years down in New Orleans at a university, great systematic theologian. He was very interested. He, he wrote really one of the best books on the history of the doctrine of grace. And I think it's just called grace or something mm. like that. But he also wrote an article in the nineties. I think it was in which he was trying to take seriously evolutionary biology and original sin and in, in kind of picking up on what you were saying, Justin, about like the mitochondrial DNA, he's like, is there a way that nature can something kind of in the natural world that might tell us something about our propensity to sin, like this experience, mm. this, of rea- this reality of original sin that we have. And, and it's really fascinating. It's not super conclusive, but, but I think he makes an interesting argument about, again, how do we try to understand our experience as humans in this world with the knowledge, the metaphors, the images, the experiences we have today? like mm-hmm. Augustine did in the fourth century, yeah, it's just not sufficient anymore. So the DNA thing is, is complicated. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, I, I'm no scientist, so I need to stop. I need to quit way before I'm ahead. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and, and the RNA,
1: you know, just like nah, no, never mind.
2: exactly. <laughs> I, I barely know something about how these vaccines are made. And I, I give thanks to right. God every day for it. I think it's a yeah. miracle. It's amazing.
1: <laughs> for sure. So, after you know talking about these different formulations or even different like theologians or theologies that that mention original sin um sometimes like and even in your book we we we, we at times can break it down to two kind of like camps right like a personal sin versus like a structural sin right um and like how about like you do a great job of the, like you know hitting hitting that in in, in the chapter do you, you want to discuss that a little bit more and then i guess just also adding why why it's important not to lose sight of structural sin
2: yeah yeah absolutely yeah i appreciate that i think well a couple things one is personal sin everyone that's the thing i think we harp on the most and and Mm -hmm. we can kind of like you know in second grade when you're getting ready for your first reconciliation in religious ed or a catholic school or something like that's when you first kind of really get this language and and sometimes people still use these categorical distinctions like venial sin, mortal sin, this, mm-hmm. that, and the other. Those those kinds of categories are helpful in terms of forming one's own own conscience and preparing for the sacraments and stuff. But we all all that is to say we basically know what a personal sin is. I've done something wrong, or I've not done something I ought to mm-hmm. have, right? Structural sin seems much more abstract to people and, and until we start thinking about the world as it actually is and not just through our own kind of limited experience. So just a little to back up a little bit, one of the biggest kind of proponents of talking about the reality of structural sin, which is to say sin exists, not just in a collection of individual actions, but in the institutions, structures, organizations, ways we order ourselves in relationships, that are more than just the individual hence the structure right um you might think of it as like a collective experience of sin Mm -hmm. and the person who talked a lot about this and it surprises some people who are like identify maybe self-identify as very traditionalist you know that that kind of Venn diagram of like i'm very traditionalist and love of john paul ii usually overlaps pretty closely you (laughs) know like (laughs) yeah you know, it's just like that scene at the end of A New Hope when they're about to blow up Princess Leia's home planet, and you see that uh, Venn diagram overlap. See, I can't help but mention the Star Wars. <laughs> it,
1: so.
0: it helps us in our modern context. Yeah, there we, we go. The <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I
2: there should. I, I imagine they probably already use a Star Wars and theology podcast, but oh gosh, that would be so much fun. Yeah, it? that'd
1: be a great. One.
2: Oh gosh, Trade, so uh,
0: trademark it now. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Somebody get on there, and register it. <laughs> so, so. Well, the Like you know, I I think sometimes people are like, "Oh, there's only personal sin. That's the only thing I should be focused on. I got to go to confession every week for this because it's about me and God or something like this." Mm -hmm. And and then I'm I'm exaggerating or stereotyping here, and I don't mean to be it presented as an insult, but just to say that those folks often also really revere Saint John Paul II, and and Mm -hmm. that's great. But it's actually Pope John Paul II who talked the most in his encyclicals on ethics and social teaching about exactly this structural sin. Mm-hmm. And so it's important, as you were saying, Kerwin, not to lose sight of it sure. because in the same way, I think it's like analogous to the confidior at mass, right? For Catholics, when we say, we acknowledge before the liturgy what we've done and what we failed to do. It's, it's oftentimes very easy to acknowledge what we've done, right? Oftentimes that's what preoccupies people. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to acknowledge what you've failed to do for a yeah. lot of different reasons. Similarly, it's a lot harder to acknowledge structural sin. And we might ask ourselves, in what way am I participating in this? Am I complicit in this? So think about economic injustice. You know, are there choices one makes as a consumer, as a purchaser that, that, You know, is that a sin of omission, what one's failed to do to take into consideration? Mm -hmm. Or if we think about environmental justice and we think about the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, as as Pope Francis and and Professor Leonardo Boff have pointed out, like these are these are things that are bigger than any one person, but they're tied to us as well. So John Paul II oftentimes talked about how structural sin can influence or help push i was gonna say form but that sounds weird but like <laughs> it, like influence personal sin and, and personal sin can contribute to like we have a personal responsibility uh for our role in kind of structures of sin but it's more than just the aggregate of individuals sinning and it's also not oh well this is a structural sin so i'm individually off the hook so it's mm-hmm. like the in between there it's a both yeah. Yeah, very catholic you know both <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> definitely Um, the, I, just a little story when I was doing pastoral ministry for a few years and I had, I called them my ridiculous six. I had six kids that they couldn't make first communion class at any other time. So I would like, I would, every other week I would teach these six kids and one of them before first reconciliations, she's sitting in the pew. And then I come over to them and say, you guys have any questions before you do this and she's like no I, i'm good i did my examination of conscious and i'm i am sure that i i didn't commit any mortal <laughs> sins I'm like all right good on you <laughs> i don't know if it's possible for an eight-year-old to do but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but she took the she she took it seriously which i which was nice um, i feel like a lot of younger kids are like uh what's going on yeah but, yeah there's a maturity there that's impressive yeah, yeah. The, the age of reason that's another podcast for another day but yeah <laughs> think hashtag thank you Thomas hashtag yeah. look to the Eastern churches <laughs> <laughs> yeah with too
2: rational in the West yeah you
0: know? um sure. so kind of building out of this personal and structural sins like we we can get so focused on what we're doing, what the maybe our societies or cultures as a whole are doing poorly, um, but we lack a sight of the people who are affected by sin. And so um, you rightly bring up this concept of Han from um, Korea. And um, so could you elaborate a little more on Han to, because uh, I mean- we want to have a full-fleshed, holistic view of this. And if we leave yeah. out those yeah. who suffer because of sin, we're not looking at the whole picture.
2: Yeah, that's you said that really well. That, you know, I think so often our focus is on the sinner and what the Korean theologians and, and Korean American theologians who have retrieved this um, cultural concept of Han, this, this Korean character that mm-hmm. um, points to... Uh, it's, it's actually untranslatable. It's really hard mm. to talk about on the one hand, and I love it in its mystery for that reason. Um, but I also think it's, it's, it embodies what it describes. It's what Rahner would call a true symbol. It, it mm. makes real that which it represents. And so, what Han is getting at is, and that, it is spelled like Han Solo, but it is not, uh, <laughs> it's not yeah, the, just the, the you know, captain of the Millennium Falcon, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but but the transliterated character Han H A N in, in English is, I guess we could say it points to the sinned against, as you were saying there, Justin. Like the I oftentimes talk about it as the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're talking about even the formation of conscience and the examination of conscience of these young, you know, children who are preparing for the sacraments or for anybody, we're thinking about, okay, what have we done as the transgressor, as the sinner? But, and then that kind of carries through a lot of theological writing and reflection and church documents and teaching. There has not been as much attention, though, to, to the other half of the equation. What about those who have been sinned against, those who've been harmed? So Han shifts the focus a little bit, and I think importantly and deservedly so, and it shifts the focus to ask the question, what are the, not just what are the consequences in a material sense, but what is enduring about this dynamic of, of breaking relationship harm and sin that we call sin? Mm-hmm. And so the Korean concept of Han, as I understand it, is again, untranslatable, but has this kind of visceral embodied, weighty, heavy sense. It it carries a sense of energy or dynamism that is in itself kind of some, some scholars refer to it as sort of, um, you know, neither good nor bad potentially. And so we understand it as an, as an, as an energy, but oftentimes it gets, it kind of turned in on itself. So somebody is Hurt, somebody is harmed, somebody is injured by another. And what is that experience that affects them moving forward? Well, I think many of us have been in a situation where we've been really hurt, we've been really, we've been sinned against, and it has enduring consequences. I think in, in psychology and in, in social science and natural science fields and fields of medicine, we can talk about trauma and the ways that trauma affect the body and people carry it viscerally, mm-hmm. I think Han is trying to present the, the concept of Han as a theological articulation of that. What does it do to our soul? What does it do to our spirit? And, and the Korean people have used this term for many, many, many generations in lots of ways in which there's also collective trauma. And so one thinks about you know, the way that Koreans were treated during the Second World War by the Japanese or during mm-hmm. the Korean War itself or in other times of conflict when whole groups or categories of people were subjugated or dehumanized and that that carries through so what what happens then so in a, in a nutshell that is to say that like when we talk about sin maybe it's not enough for us to think about the ones you know how self-centered is it that not only did somebody sin and cause harm but then it's like we're only going to think about talk about and confess those people let's yeah, let's yeah. focus on <laughs> yeah. you know the victim survivors so i also mm-hmm. think han presents a really important and really needed lens and perspective in the age of clergy sexual abuse and mm. other forms of collective trauma absolutely um, you know
0: yeah that's a good point because there, too often there's like especially with the clergy abuse stuff that there's too often like apologists around it that it's like well, it's the same exact percent as the rest of Ooh. pedophiles in all other institutions. Like, no, just be quiet and yeah. listen to this person who was hurt. Like, um, and and it,
2: centers, it centers the other voice, right? Instead of making it about as important as it is, right? Because it's never about you know, mitigating or minimizing the evil, the sinfulness, the criminality of those who have caused the transgression. But it is also about like, it's a different perspective to start with those who have been sinned against. Yeah. So it's it's centering victim survivors when we talk about abuse or it's centering, you know, those who are the, the subjugated in in other contexts. I think about like in the US context of the reality of white supremacy and, and <laughs> racial uh, injustice that, you know, to, to think about the ways in which there's a two-sided coin. Some people benefit and some people are harmed by this again back to your point kerman a structural sin the sin of racism so like we can come up with lots of examples of that i think as somebody and so franciscan in this way <laughs> he thinks about you know creation as as a family as god's family mm-hmm. of creation we are the transgressors pope francis calls us to this in Laudato Si'. see you know the human source of our ecological devastation he says we need to acknowledge our ecological sins borrowing from the Eastern church who talk about this a lot better than we do sometimes, mm-hmm. but you know, who is the sin against here? And it's our sisters and brothers, the other animals and plants and, and creatures of this world. So um, if we start there, boy, the conversation changes totally, doesn't it? It requires yeah, a right? different way of thinking.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um,
1: well, I <laughs> you, think you, you, you oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Just oh, to...
0: you can ask the next one.
1: Oh yeah, so it's it's great that you were able to kind of like bring that back to kind of like the structural sin of our own nation, right? And so looking at America's original sin, and I believe you 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 just published a new book, or the theme of your new book is this, right, Justin? Is uh, yeah. Great, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just,
0: it's a white Catholics guide to racism yeah. and privilege.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: yeah, yeah. So
2: I mean, the, the book is. The, the title itself says a lot. There's a yeah. lot in there. <laughs> um, you know, it's written by me, uh, a white man in the U S context. And it's, it's geared to fellow people who look like me, who occupy a social location like me um, mm-hmm. with, the, with the expressed intention of not trying to speak for anybody else. And mm-hmm. in this way, there's a kind of going back to the language of Han an attentiveness to not speaking for those who have been sinned against by this structural sin of which we, are all enmeshed, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we think about sin generally as the transgressor and the sinned against, you know, the sinner and the Han, or the sin and the Han, similarly with with structural or systemic racism in the U.S. context, we have the same sort of thing. I think Mm -hmm. it's a little bit reversed though, ironically, because it can be much easier to see those instances of subjugation, harm, injustice, violence in in one direction Mm -hmm. but but white people like myself and and people who are in situations and contexts like me have a much more difficult time looking at the one who's actually the 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 sinner in this case. Yeah. Right. And, and that makes, even as I'm saying that people are probably recoiling because they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm, I'm not a racist. I'm not a sinner. Well, sure. yes, you are a sinner. Yeah. And I mean, that's just, we, we just spent like 20 minutes talking about how we all are. Right. A yeah, right. <laughs> but then this, this point about, you know, whether one wants to identify as a racist or not, I think we, we can all agree for being honest that everybody is touched in the US context by the reality of racism yeah. and mm-hmm. by structures of white supremacy. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean necessarily that everybody who's white or is, is perceived as white or, or white presenting or what have you is a member of the Ku Klux Klan or anything ridiculous yeah. like that. That's yeah. not, let's not reduce it to that. What it does mean though, is that our experience is very different from the experience of persons of color in this context. Mm-hmm. And then that is the starting point to think more deeply about reality as it is. And and as the prophets point out in the Old Testament and and how God is calling us to a reality that should be otherwise.
1: Mm -hmm. And
2: and so, you know, one of the things that I think doesn't get enough attention is thinking about the ways in which racism operates, not only kind of like analogous to our conversation about sin in personal ways, which is how most people think about it, kind of discrete acts of racial animus, and to think about it as a culture, as, as Father Brian Massingale has often said, mm-hmm. there's a culture of racism, and he calls it famously a soul sickness, right? This mm-hmm. is a call mm-hmm. for people of faith. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where, where the book is, is focused on, is taking that initiative, taking that call to action seriously, that if, if, you know, we're people of faith, the white Catholic part there, you know, how do we understand racism? how do we understand how whiteness operates in society and how the system of racial injustice and white supremacy in our midst blinds people who benefit, who are on the other side of the Han coin, as it were, from seeing their own complicity in sin, in structures of sin, as John Paul II would call them. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do about it? You know, how do we mm-hmm. understand it? What are we going to do about it? That's kind of the focus.
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't know. No, it, I guess it, this thought is kind of related, but I remember having, it, at least having this. It's important for the white Catholics to have this language and understanding, especially to articulate it to others. Because, like, I my mom was visiting us, and some something about statue removal came up, and she like she started harping on it, and I just said, "Mom, that's not a good example." <laughs> like, and and then later that night she asked me why and i was able to having that uh, this language of like privilege mm-hmm. and the structure of um racism within the u.s context to really help her see and then she's like remembering like oh yeah i, I mean i remember like when i was in working in georgia remotely and they wouldn't let uh african-american guy into the hotel and like i had saw seen him in the lobby earlier like see now you see it
1: (laughs) yeah yeah
0: yeah and
2: it's you know it's such a complicated complex issue um and i think it's scary it's Mm -hmm. it's scary fear you know it it strikes me as as a very christian very catholic challenge you know in the post-resurrection scenes in the gospels the line Jesus says most regularly is do not be afraid, be not mm-hmm. afraid, right? He appears in the upper room, the disciples are locked up because they're afraid of being killed too. Mm-hmm. And he says, do not be afraid, you know, all kind over and over again. Why? Well, because fear as I, I like to say, is the enemy of Christian discipleship. Fear is mm-hmm. what takes us off the path of walking in the footprints of the Lord. And, mm-hmm. and I think people have different fears depending on, their own experience, their life experience, their context, their history, their identities. And I would say, you know, white Catholics in the U.S. uh, context, there's a lot of fear around facing some of these tough questions and stepping back and having an honest look at them. Mm -hmm. And I think when people, sometimes people ask me like, well, what do you mean privilege? You know, I'm a, yeah, I'm white or I'm identified as white, but I grew up in a very poor family. You know, I've struggled my whole life. It hasn't been easy, yada, yada, yada. All these things may be true. So like, where's my privilege? You're like, where, where's where where did I miss that day at the store where they were handing out privilege? Like,
1: yeah, yeah, it's like that.
2: Yeah, it's like an episode of Oprah, and you get a car, and you get a car, and here's your privilege. And 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 I I totally understand the resistance there because that language sometimes is not always helpful. It just is so associated with with things or materiality or or. or Benefits that are easily recognizable. Mm-hmm. So one thing I've, I've been thinking a lot more lately is to understand the language of privilege. Maybe one way we should think about it is what do certain populations of people, based on something entirely arbitrary like the color of their skin, mm-hmm. what do some people have to suffer and deal with and fear and others do not at all? Mm-hmm. And, and then the language starts changing, the imagery starts changing a bit, and it's harder to look away from it. It's harder to deny it you know, like per your conversation with your mom, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, think about all the horrible violence against people of color that's perpetuated by police that's become more and more well-known because of social media and technology like cameras on our phones.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I have never feared for my life. I've been pulled over before and it's almost always because I was doing something wrong like speeding or you know missed the stop sign or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But there was never. I was afraid. I was afraid to get a ticket. <laughs> I was afraid of getting That's in true. trouble. Uh, but I was never afraid that this police officer was going to shoot me yeah. or that my <laughs> life was going to be in danger. I never had to go into a store and, you know, be afraid that somebody like a security guard or a cashier would accuse me of stealing something or follow me around or somehow otherwise embarrass me or call me out or bring shame to me. I, there are lots of ways in which I've not had to deal with certain things. And when sure. you occupy a situation, a, a location in society and in the church and in our communities, like I do like that, it can be easy just to assume, well, this is how everybody else experiences. So, so therefore, if this is my experience and you experience something different, like the police are pulling you over more, then clearly you must be doing something wrong. You see how that kind of illogic works, that kind of sinful thing. Sure. Right? Yeah. And and like thinking back to the Han example with, with you know, theology and, and pastoral reflections on how we engage with the topic of sin. I think back to the example of the statues that you mentioned a mm-hmm. moment ago, Justin, that, you know, that, that's been a hot button issue every couple of years and yeah. in recent years, especially. And the thing, and I think I've written about this publicly in my common and CR and elsewhere that, you know, I don't think it's the place of those who are most comfortable, most secure, most benefited, most privileged in society to be the ones whose voices are heard first and foremost that are, that are given priority. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if, if as a white person, I'm indifferent to a statue of Robert E Lee in the town square, well, that's my experience. That's my view. That's fine. But it shouldn't be my view. That's privileged. That's given priority when there are women and men and children, particularly black women and men and children who walk by that statue and that statue conveys a certain signal and meaning and, and, uh, impact that is, that's harmful. That's subjugating. That's, that's painful. Um, that priority, that view should be, that should, that should be given the priority. So, um, I really Absolutely. appreciate that example because it's, it's something that comes up a lot, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, does. It it come it comes to mind like just in in all the, um, all the protests and whatnot last year that when the Huniperosera statue was torn down in San Francisco and it was the archbishop's response was to go hold like a rosary prayer vigil at the side of the statue, and I just i mean for me i cringe and it's like not even i would say just from even a christian standpoint like well why don't you go find out why yeah they ripped it down it like you're you're prioritizing a material thing over human beings and that's I'm pretty sure there's a commandment about that. <laughs> <laughs> so in one of the top
2: three. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I, I think that's really well said about, you know, a a piece of bronze over the experiences of, of communities of humans. You know, mm-hmm. I think that is that's really well put. And you know, I'll be the first to say, and I, I've said it publicly. I'm a Franciscan friar, and I'm a theologian, and so I'm a, I'm a knowledgeable Franciscan friar. Yeah. <laughs> even if, even if I weren't, you got papers okay. that tell us. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I have course. a piece of paper <laughs> in, in a frame, it counts for something. <laughs> but even if I didn't, you know, as a friar, that's you know, it's basically, I, I, yeah, I cringed like like you did. I think so many did. But my cringiness was like, don't you know, whether it's, whether it's an archbishop or whether it's individuals on their own or parish communities or whatever, it's like part of the rhetoric that I really found offensive was, is if this was some kind of insult to me or even to Unipro Sarah himself.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And this is kind of like going back to the John Henry Newman thing. If we had a time machine, we could go back and bring Sarah back here.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: from what we understand about what he was like in his time centuries ago, he didn't do things perfectly. You know, he's certainly culpable for things that today we'd recognize as reprehensible. But newsflash, so are a bunch of religious women and men who ran schools. And I'm not even talking about sexual abuse. I'm talking about the old nuns wrapping you on the fingers with, yeah. the, with a ruler, <laughs> you know, or, or forcing children who were naturally left-handed to write with their right hand. You know, mm-hmm. Other forms of things that we'd recognize as unjust or cruel today. That just just does not float. It's, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to get Unipro off the hook. I'm trying to say that because in his time, it's he seems to have, the historians have made clear, he was certainly not as vicious and, and discriminatory and violent as many of his peers were, both mm-hmm. in religious life and in the Spanish kind of colonial regime. Mm-hmm. That said, I would like to think that kind of like a... Um, kind of proportionally if he he if he somehow zoomed into 2022 or 2021 2020 and looked at what was going on in the world i think he would be on the side of those who are saying get you know we the statue is just too complicated it's too painful yeah you know but i think that's hard for again it's it's the fear it's the it's the fear that you know people are losing something or mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I don't have a lot of patience for that as you yeah, yeah. That. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe my last thought is I I I think that it, I mean we proclaim Hino Procero to be a saint. So we're we're saying we're saying homeboy is in heaven. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: and,
0: and even like Jesus or Mary, like if their statues are vandalized, I I think that that's kind of if Jesus let us whip him and nail him to a cross and didn't retaliate and hmm. but, n- not to say he was okay with it, but that it was, he didn't, he didn't <laughs> say bring it on. You know, yeah, said, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah Sign up for it. But yeah. it was like, it's like, I'll take, I'll take your hurt and your pain and your sinfulness and I'm going <laughs> to take it on to myself. Mm-hmm. And that's, when I the whole statue, at least the religious statue conversation, that's kind of where I came to. It, it was like, maybe as a spiritual standpoint, it's like, no, this too, Jesus will bear for us, mm-hmm. whether literally or metaphorically. So,
2: yeah, I think that's a really good point. It also reminds me of of something, uh, the great Protestant. Uh, moral theologian, uh, actually, Kevin, your neck of the woods, Stanley uh, Hauerwas at Duke University. Yep. you know he, <laughs> he he famously tells this story about how he went to this small church to give a talk, and he began with a bunch of swear words. I, mean, I won't repeat them on your, your very holy <laughs> podcast. Oh, yeah, <he's laughs> super but, holy. <laughs> yeah, so he, he 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 dropped he dropped let's say maybe an f bomb or something to that effect. And people were freaked out, you know, because, oh, my gosh, who is, this guy is standing in the sanctuary at a pulpit and he's saying this. And and he just kind of let them get uncomfortable. And he said, if you're more upset that I used a curse word in a church than you are about the suffering that people are experiencing in this world, then your priorities are wrong. Mm. And And it was like the starting point for his reflection. I've always loved that because I think it speaks to what you were saying about the statues, which is like, if you're more upset about this, you know, that, that you're going to spend your time and energy, you know, defending something that is clearly not one-sided, right? It is a complex situation. And, yeah. and I think, you know, rather than attend to or at least, you know, open yourself up to the vulnerability of listening to other people's experiences, yeah. then I don't think there's anything Christian about that. And I agree with you. You know, you didn't put it this way, but I would say like there's there's something almost blasphemous about you know, I think not only were there these like prayer services at the site of the statues, but there were like, I think at least one bishop tried to do like an exorcism of some kind or something oh, stupid. God. And, and, and I think, you know, that, that, that's not
1: Christian. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well,
0: um, all right. Uh, Kerwin, you got any other things you want to get in? <laughs> no, I am very happy
1: <laughs> for the things that I got in. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> um, uh, Father Dan, any other final thoughts or were... Since we're we're coming up on an hour here, <laughs> I know it goes by quickly. It's
2: yeah. it's a it's a pleasure to talk with you too, and uh, yeah, this has been a lot of fun uh, as as promised. I, I appreciate your your good spirit, and and we can bounce from Star Wars nerdy references yeah. to <laughs> theology nerdy references and back. And that's, yeah, yeah, that's I love it. That's my yeah. world.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah, so may, and maybe. Um, not to leave everything on sin. I know the chapter after the sin one was on grace, so maybe we can have you on again in the future to talk about grace. That's um, actually my favorite thing to talk yeah. about. All right. <laughs>
2: I I always teach when I teach theological anthropology, I, it's it's in that same order too. I always yeah. I start with sin cuz let's put it on the table. Yeah. 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 And and you know, they they the two these two doctrines develop together, sin and grace, you know. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but grace is it should be it is the final word. It is the final chapter yeah. in a sense. It's
0: Absolutely. So, cool. um, is there places where people can follow you, find you? Best play it, that all that good podcast jargon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, like subscribe. You know, tell your yeah. friends. Share. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you mentioned Francis Beck podcast. So, if you're listening, that means you listen to podcasts. You can check that out too with me and David Dalton Heidi Schlump. Um, and I'm on the socials. It's it's Dan Haran OFM at at all of them. So Insta and Twitter and I'm not on TikTok. I don't understand it. I'm too old. <laughs> uh, I totally miss Snapchat. You know, there was a period of time. I, I remember I have to tell you this because it's so embarrassing. It makes me sound so old. <laughs> that I was I was somewhere giving, I don't know, I was giving like a parish mission, and there was like some dinner one one night before like one of the talks. With, with the young adults in the parish, like the youth group or something. And I was like having pizza at this table. And I was talking to these kids. This is like 10 years ago. And I said, I said, I have to ask you guys something. Can you help me out? I know, I, I know I'm being so embarrassing. I'm just, I, this is, I'm just gotta be honest with you. I see online sometimes or on posters. There's like the Facebook sign and the little birdie for Twitter I'm like, what is that ghost? Why (laughs) what is the ghost everywhere? And they looked at me like I had just like like he they looked at me like I was a a Augustine looking at us coming through the time machine. (laughs) What what, what are you what ghost? Because I literally didn't I heard, you know, something about Snapchat and I got the general idea. I heard about this, you know, messages that disappear or something, but I never connected that with the ghost icon. Mm -hmm. And so anyways. You will not find me on either Ghost app
0: or uh, or the TikTok, <laughs> something uh, like that. Unless Everywhere they come, else. unless they come out with a Force Ghost app. Oh uh, yeah, Force yeah. Ghost. Yeah, and or by I, locating Force uh, Skywalker app. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, uh, I had a similar thing. There was like I had just done a big like lecture for like the fourth through sixth graders and then these all all these fourth grade girls they're like in, in the parish hall and they come up and they're like Mr. Justin will you do a tick tock with us like, no
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> absolutely not like love you, love you kids but I am not going to incriminate myself <laughs> all right uh thanks again Father Dan and um we'll uh we'll do it again in the future and For um sure. Best of luck with all of the thing, all the all the honey jars you have your hands in. <laughs> <laughs> thank
2: you, guys. Thanks for having me, and
0: keep up yeah. the good work. Yeah, absolutely, so thanks. Thanks. You can find us uh, at Nazarenos for Life, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, at Nazarenos for Life. Our website is just kind of a wasteland, right? House, <laughs> but that's nazarenos 4 Leave us a bad review. Yeah, leave us a one star review, or I mean, if you actually like it, a five star review. <laughs> um, all right, Los Nazarenos out.